0: You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthopechurch. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. Grab a Bible, turn to James chapter 4. Guest, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. Uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, uh, through the book of James which we have titled Our Faith in Action. And let me just say church it is so good to stand in front and hear you sing beautifully and to hear us praise Jesus together. And uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, there should be a, a black covered Bible in front of you and you can turn to page 1000 73, and follow along with us. And if you uh, are not a believer today, uh, we hope and pray that you are welcome. Uh, You are welcomed here this morning and you are welcome to hear what God has to say today. We preach through books of the Bible because we believe that God has spoken and we believe that we are here to learn and hear from Him and that we want to grow in our faith. And so as a church, we, we come together to make mature disciples. And when we do that, we talk about what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who confesses the truth of the gospel. A disciple is someone who's being transformed by the power of the gospel. A disciple is someone who is engaging our world with the hope of the gospel for the purpose and the end that we are disciples who would multiply disciples and churches with the mission of the gospel. That's why we gather. That's why we do what we do, that's why we're here, because we have a Savior, as we've just sung, is reigning in heaven who was killed on a cross, but was raised three days later. We have a king who reigns, a king who is for us, a king who gave his life for you. And it is that gospel, that as disciples, that we proclaim. We don't come here on Sunday morning or we don't gather in different parts of the week to talk about how we can be better or how we can do things or how we can accomplish anything. We come because there has been a God who came to this world, who came to save us. And now in that power, we now live together in community as His church. And we live in all the aspects of our lives. That's why we are here. Because we have a gospel that is so, so good that it is good news for us. And it's good news not because it's just that Jesus loves you but it's good news because there was once bad news. That we were separated from Him. That we were His enemy. That we were destined to be separated from His goodness and graciousness forever in hell. But we have a God who loves us. And James, he picks up in this gospel, as he's writing to these Christians, remember, he's writing to Christians, this is most likely the first book that's written in the New Testament. And remember, that it is it's these Christians who are trying to live out this gospel. It are these Christians who are trying to figure out, how does the gospel change my life today? And so James, as he writes to them, as we pick up in chapter 4, in this, this second half of chapter 4, here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that James condemns the attitude of arrogance towards God's people, God's law, and God's will. And if you are a disciple today, we invite you. We invite you in the power of the gospel to live like this. Disciples must reject the attitude of arrogance through faith in God's character and sovereignty. Through faith in God's character and sovereignty. Sovereignty. James is wrapping up the section on wisdom in the community of God. As we've talked about over the last few weeks in this this portion of James' letter, he's specifically talking about what does it look like? What does a wise community of God's people look like? And we talked about our words and our speech. We talked about conflict. We talked about lots of things. How do we love God together? And And now what James does is he brings up two scenarios for us that speak to how we love Him and how we love each other. And James shows us what faithful wisdom looks like. There is a godly wisdom in how we live and how we talk. There's also an earthly wisdom that could define how we live and how we talk. And so James, as we look here, we must come to this and we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. And so as we look through the text this morning, we might ask the question, what are errors we may be tempted to be arrogant in? Maybe we're arrogant today because North Carolina beat Duke yesterday in the final game of Coach K's career. (laughs) Maybe just a little bit we can be arrogant. God had, as I was talking to Kim this morning, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he, that I can stand up here and maybe celebrate a little bit that that happened last night. Or we can come and we can humble ourselves knowing that there are lots of things in this world that uh, we can put our trust in, our hope in, and they don't matter. As much as I love watching basketball and Carolina play, it means nothing. It's in the, in the scheme of eternity, right? What are, what are the areas that we may be tempted to be arrogant in? What are, what are those areas for us? How do we reject arrogance today? How, how do we place the gospel in front of us and say, hey... Lord, help me walk in humility. I think there's an answer to that. This faith in God's sovereignty and His character, what it should produce in us is submission. That we trust Him. That we give our lives to Him. That what His Word says we do and how we live, and we we trust Him with all that we are. It's faithful submission to God. That's how we reject arrogance. And so this morning there's two actions to take in that submission. As we walk through the text, there's going to be two actions that we need to take together when we submit our lives in faith to our good God. So, number one, first action this morning. Reject the idea that you are the ultimate judge by submitting to God's law. And we're going to see this in verses 11 through 12. We come here into verses 11 and 12 and we see this idea of how we talk and where it goes to is this idea of judging Others. And so what we see here is that slander violates God's commands. Look there at verse 11. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. So James gives a, gives a command, don't criticize. And in this verse, in, in a way, James, uh, he's summing up, he's connecting back to a section a couple weeks ago, talking about controlling our tongue, and now he's bolstered that with sections on wisdom and conflict. And so he comes back around and says, this should not be in God's community. Now, most of our Bibles translate this word slander as speak evil or speak against. James wants us to see the sinfulness of this speech because it is slandering another brother or sister in Christ. It is to malign someone question their authority speak words in secret or being incorrect or bring incorrect accusations against someone this is a very serious situation and would be would be unjustified speech against someone and you can imagine how this this word slander this action could could actually harm the community And Christians cannot get caught up in this kind of action because God has commanded in places like Leviticus 19 to not slander our neighbor. And this command to not slander our neighbor in Leviticus 19.16 is in the context of of a section where God is talking about you should love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 If we are loving each other, then we aren't slandering one another. Why though? Why is James so concerned with this? Continue in verse 11. Anyone who defames or judges, a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. James now connects the sin of slander to the bigger picture. Anyone who defames, that's the same word as slander. Or judges, which is a new word, which means to try or condemn A fellow believer also, James says, judges the law. Notice the progression that James makes here. Notice what he says. You cannot slander your brother or sister because when you do, you're actually judging the law. What does that mean? What is James actually getting at? Well, first, here and throughout the letter, I believe James uses this word law to talk about the law of love. James says uh, that this is, this is this idea back in chapter 2. He says the royal law, and I think this law is not, don't think about the law in the Old Testament, but it's the summation of that law and to love God and to love others, which is given by Jesus in his, both in his sermons, in his proclamation, but also in his life. This is the kingdom law. This is what it looks like to honor God by loving him and loving others. A second, though, slanderous criticism opposes God's command to love our neighbor. And when we slander our neighbor, we're actually judging. We're setting ourselves aside and saying, that law does not, does not have any impact on me. We're judging the law and God. And we are making ourselves higher than the law as if it does not apply to us. Do you see the double standard here? Right? Hey, you, you can't do that. We may say words about someone, but we're actually judging the law. We call out those who reject God's command outright, but we are guilty of the same sin by elevating ourselves above God's law. We must reject, church, the temptation to elevate ourselves above God's commands. We must reject that. We cannot pick and choose which commands we like to follow. Because all of us, whether we'd like to acknowledge or not, there are some laws that we're down with. You're like, hey, yeah, I like those. I like those. And some, some of them are like, yeah, I don't like following that one. But what normally happens, we want people to follow the laws that we want. You should treat me the way that I want you to treat me. Or when someone breaks, uh, breaks a command or is in sin, instead of actually coming and, and, and actually trying to to resolve that, we may begin to speak about it. And what we do is we, we show grace to ourselves, don't we? Right? Well, I didn't, you know, I, my motivation was this. We give ourselves a lot of grace here, don't we? But we don't give grace to, to others. We, we, we hold that away. And that's what James is saying. This idea of judging, we begin to place ourselves as the one who's mediating both in action and also in heart. In reality, we're failing to do or keep the law of love by placing ourselves over it. We are rejecting God's authority in our lives. Our faith. Remember, we're disciples who are growing in our faith. Our faith is tested by our obedience to the law, to God's commands. We cannot be placing ourselves over it. And when we take God's place as judge, when we choose which commands to follow we put ourselves in the position of deciding which of them we really think ought to be followed rather than letting the law shape who we are remember the law was not given right to save Israel from Egypt God didn't come to Egypt and give them the law He didn't tell them this law is going to save you. That's not what happened. When God came to Egypt for his people, he freed them. He saved them. And as they were now his people, as God would say, I I did not choose you because you were the mightiest people. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. I chose you because you are my people. And out of that now, this is how you're, you're called to live. Right? We don't have standards, we don't have this idea of loving God and loving others is not what saves us, it's because we are saved that we can even do this. Oftentimes we get this mixed up. We get this mixed up and think that I have to do all of these commands to be saved when in reality, no, we have the opportunity because we are saved, we can live this way. Rather than let the law shape us, we begin to place ourselves over it. Saved people reject arrogance because they have met the holy God of the universe. We know our stories, we know what God has done inside of us. Believe me, I know what God has done in my own heart. I think if we all begin to share today we would begin to see that God has dealt with us kindly and mercifully and graciously we must reject arrogance because we've met God and not only does slander violate God's commands judge, judging or judgmentalism violates God's character look there at verse 12 There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? But who are you to judge your neighbor? James explains that there is one lawgiver, meaning God is the unique and only judge in the universe. He has this role because why? He is the creator of all things. This is highlighted by James adding these words, right? He's able to save and destroy. If we go to the court and we are judged by a judge, they don't have the power to save us or destroy us. They can sentence us. But God is the one true judge who can both save and destroy and judge us. The idea is that God is the final judge and will determine our ultimate spiritual destiny. He's the only one that can do that. It's a part of God's character. It's who He is that sets him apart as creator judge when we slander our neighbors saying ourselves over God's law then we violate his character by trying to take his role as a good and righteous judge this is not our job but it's so easy, right? it's so easy to place ourselves in this fashion James's rationale, his thought process, for not judging stems from the character of God. By setting ourselves up as having the right to decide which laws or which commands ought or ought not to be obeyed, right? our sins of speech disclose even a greater problem. Right? Our sins show us that we're usurping God's role, which is in direct opposition to you shall have no other gods before me. God is the one who establishes what is right. He's the lawgiver. Right? He's also the one who punishes the wrongdoer. He's the judge. He's the only one that rightly can judge because he is also the one who can rightly punish or save. Usurping God as judge really says that I have the authority to decide. I have the authority to decide. And what we're doing is we're blaspheming God. Because we're not, we're, not, we're not saying, well, you're, we're not, not that you're not God, but like, I like to be that. I like to be God. The issue in our lives is what sin has caused in us is that we like to be God. We like to sit on the throne of our own hearts. When we submit to God's law, we're really submitting to God's character. All right, as, I, as I told you, God doesn't give the law to save Israel. He gives them the law because they were saved. Also, the law is not this thing that just is is great. We don't come to the law and say, hey, how great is the law? No, we come to it and say, I can't live up to that. Why? Because it's a reflection of God's character. When we we reject God's law by placing ourselves over all we're saying is we don't need God, or we don't need His character, we don't need His love, His grace, His mercy, or His judgment. We don't need His holiness, His righteousness, His justice. We reject God's character when we place ourselves over the law. Now, you might rightly ask, well, what about confronting sin? What about confronting sin? We absolutely must confront sin, 100%. That's not what James is talking about. All right? so if you think about uh, Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, when he talks about if you have a, someone in your church who is in outright sin, who will not repent, he says to what? Remove them and treat them as a non-believer. He doesn't say they are a non-believer. That's not his argument. His argument is treat them like one because the hope is that they will be restored into the community of God. So we are not the judge of, of others. Even Paul, and we may call out sin, but we are not their final spiritual authority. We protect the church's unity and purity by calling out sin and confronting it and repenting. But we are not the final spiritual authority, right? Paul even says this, we hope that he will return. This person will return to the church. So the church must protect the unity and purity of the gospel. But we really struggle in that area, don't we? In summary, there are three important things I want you to see from these couple verses. Number one, God alone has the right to judge. He alone is the lawgiver, the author of justice and righteousness. And number two, God actually, He delegates that authority. He delegates that to us. When exercising this role, however, we serve not as our own agents, not as what we want, but as representatives of God. In some ways, we are... Commanded to judge, such in cases of, of spiritual discernment and sin. But in such areas are also to judge not in accordance with our own proclivities, our own personal convictions, or our own standards. Why? Because this is delegated authority. It's not ours. If, if you know what a magistrate is, the magistrate you know, does the paperwork and you know, sends... Sends off so the judge has said this. The magistrate makes sure that happens. But the magistrate can't do what the judge does. And so what happens is we oftentimes, we think that when in reality we're signing paperwork, we think, okay, now I'm going to place myself on the judge's bench. And oftentimes we put our own standards there. Well, here's the problem, too. If we're really honest, we often judge inappropriately. When we use slander or misinformation for ulterior motives or seek what appears to our eyes to be good, we think it's good. We're doing more than sinning against our neighbor. We are breaking trust with God who has delegated that responsibility to us. And we, in fact, are judging ourselves. We demonstrate a lack of understanding of who God is when we allow ourselves to do this. This is why we this is why the church together has this responsibility, has this delegated authority. No one person can do this alone. Although we may be able to confront sin, we may call sin out when there's no repentance or when there's an issue, we bring others along with us, don't we? Because we're not perfect, and we're not all righteous, and we're not all knowing, and we're not all just. And so may we be a people who actually submit ourselves to God's law in a way so that we can reject arrogance, say, hey, here's what's true, may I not judge someone's heart. The, David, who's not here today, I, I, I appreciate this example. What, how we talk about being, being ju- we judge someone, we confront them versus judgmentalism is this. Someone's in a ditch and as we walk by, we, oh, you're in a ditch and now um, that's funny. Now that's, you know, hey, you know, you're all messed up, I'm going to leave you in the ditch. That's what judgmentalism is. But being a judge is, oh, I recognize you're in a ditch, and so let me come help you get out of that ditch. That's the difference. One is restorative, and one is to make fun or harm of someone. As disciples, we must reject that we are the ultimate or sole judge by submitting to God's law, His very character, so that we may become the people that He wants us to be. Second action we need to take today. Reject the idea that you are the ultimate planner by submitting to God's lordship. Reject the idea that you are the ultimate planner by submitting to God's lordship. We're going to see that in verses 13 through 17. We are not in control. And James is going to show us this. We must consider our worldview. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. James uses this, this expression, come now, to call us to listen and heed his words. He wants us to lean in and hear him when he talks about this is what it looks like to submit ourselves to God. He points his comments to you who say. There's a certain group of people who, those who say these things, it would have, would have been someone in the church family. It would have been someone who professes to be a Christian it's also this idea those of you who say these things shows us that what we say reveals what we believe. Our words reveal our heart. James is going to confront these, these words and he's going to ultimately confront these, this worldview. Well, what words were they saying? Well, they were saying today or tomorrow, meaning that they were deliberately planning for the future. They were confident also in their plans. And they believe that they will be accomplished and there is no reason to worry. No reason to worry. And it's it's this worldview or belief that James confronts. He says that these planners, these travelers, believe that their plans will take place and that they are so self-confident that they don't trust in God and that they're arrogant. That they believe they have everything under control. Believing we are in control... Of, of our lives and the ultimate plan does not match the worldview of a faithful disciple. Believing that we're in control does not match the worldview of a faithful disciple. Why? Because ultimate control in this life is an illusion. It's an illusion. You are not in control. But there are circumstances for, for many of us that makes us feel like we're in control. right? Our jobs, the money we have, the stuff we have, the decisions that we get to make. It makes us feel like we're in control, doesn't it? It makes us feel like I have, I have everything that I need, I don't need anything. I get to make the decision to go to work tomorrow or to take a vacation or to take my family out to dinner. And it's really easy to think that I, we have everything under control. It's an illusion. And it's one that that the enemy, that the devil wants you to believe that you have it all under control. It doesn't take very much for things to begin to spin out of control. Look at how this played out in verse 13. It says these Christians, they were planning this kind of travel of business, right? So this travel during this time would have been, uh, there would have actually been kind of a little bit of an explosion uh, in the first century and was marked by growing trade right, commercial activity and travel, right, it's their, it's their attitude, not the, not the occupation, that's not what's going on, so James is saying, you think that you're in control, and remember, sailing in the first century, you're going to have to travel, there were lots of dangers, there were lots of, of natural disasters that could take place when you're, you're riding in a, in, a, in a wooden boat across the sea, uh, I was out at sea about 50 miles uh, with my father-in-law deep sea fishing, and uh, I was not fishing because I was on the side of the boat the whole time, and uh, I felt really uncomfortable the whole time. We're a 20 foot, 20 foot 8 boat or foot boat, and I was, you know, just like I was struggling the whole time. But I would even bo- even be more in trouble if I was on a wooden boat. Think think about the the things that we even have now that would say, yeah, we're safer. But these folks were traveling. There were lots of dangers for them. But they were like, no, we got this. We're fine. But they also say we're going to spend a year there, right? They think that they're going to go and they're going to live and there's going to be no trouble. They're going to do business. This is the activity. This is why they travel. And they're going to have a profit. They're going to make a profit. This is the result. Let me be clear. James is not condemning a profit. He's not condemning that. What he's condemning is the, the, the idea that that profit is the sole reason for the future. This is why we live. This is what we live for. What James is confronting is the idea that the profit is all for us. What's the profit go- going to? I think most of us, whether it's you know, a few dollars a week or a few dollars a month or maybe more than that over the course of the year, we may be able to save some money. That's not what James is talking about. But what he's talking about is do you hoard that profit in such a way that it's actually your security blanket? We are people that, yes, we should plan for the future. We should save for the future. That's not, that's not what James is talking about. If you have a 401k, you can rest easy. That's okay. That's not what James is saying. What he's saying is, is that where you put your trust and security in? Or do you use this profit, the, the things that you have, to be a blessing to others, to actually be generous with your stuff and your money and your time? Some of you are, have more of a profit of money Are you generous with that? Some of you now, in your stage of life, have more of a profit of time. Are you more generous with that? Some of you are really gifted. A lot more gifted than me. You can fix things around the house. If I fix something around the house, it's going to be broke worse than it was before I started. How are you using that? Are you being generous with this? Or is it a security blanket and you hold on to it with dear life? So how does James respond to this idea of this kind of planning? He responds to it with truth. This is their worldview, and now he's going he's to speak truth to it. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, or your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. It's really hard to get at what James is, is doing here in the text. That this, for some of our translations, it may say yet. It's really trying to communicate this question how can you, as limited as you are, believe that you're in control? How can you presume to determine the future? Your life, my life, our lives are like a vapor. They're a mist. They're like in the cold when it's 20 degrees outside and we breathe and you see it for a second and it's gone. That's what James is saying. It's gone. That Our life is fleeting it's fragile. We know how quickly it can go. Many of us in the room have lost loved ones. We know how quickly life can be taken. So many things can happen. Proverbs 27.1 uh, says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring. And Job says in chapter 7 and verse 7, he says, my, my life is a breath. Saying the same things that James does. I, my life is quick. And Jesus, he taps into this idea as well in Luke 12, when he gives the parable of the rich fool, who this rich person, they, they store up, they have greenhouses and they store up all these things, and he goes to travel, and he dies, and he's not able to actually spend any of the things that he accumulated. It didn't matter they saved them up. He, as, as we know, he couldn't take it with him. And so James rightly brings the traders, the businessmen, the travelers back down to their proper place in the world as creatures and not creator. Do you see the absurdity to try to plan your life with no regard to who God is or what God is doing? Do you see the arrogance behind that? To believe that you can plan it and God not be in control. It does not make any sense. This should create humility in us. It really should. The humility that is, is helpful, right? James hits this back in chapter 1. Recognize that all these things come from, right? they come from an idea that we're not submitting ourselves to the Lord and we think we know or that we have everything under control. I, I personally struggle with this. Right? I know that God is in control mentally. And even in my heart, I believe that. But I struggle to see or hear or listen to the ways God has provided. Right? I struggle to make Him real and tangible for my own family. As we pray at night now, I try to think about what are the things God has provided today? And what are the things that He's given us? And what are the things that we have that He is the only reason that we're in this position? Again, the the illusion that we're in control is really, really powerful. But if we would, would sit and pray and acknowledge This is all that God has given us. My home, my family, the food in my pantry, the cars I drive, everything has been given by God. And if I fall into the temptation to believe that this is somehow something that I've done, then I'm believing exactly what James is condemning. I struggle with this. God showed me has been working on me this week. I I, kind of wish it would have been a different week, but that's okay. Uh, That uh, Ash and I are trying to save we're trying, we have some things that we want to do and things that we're trying to prepare for the future for and, 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 and I'm preaching this and God said you think you're going to save that? there you go here's the, the pest bill and here's the, the, uh, the car registration bill and here's other things that, that you're going to have to pay for if you put your security in these things then I'm going to take it away if you think that because you say this certain number every month that you're in a good place I'm going to take it away. I don't know if God is doing that per se, but what I'm seeing is that maybe, maybe just saving this amount of money could be an idol in my own life. What's that idol in your life today? What is God trying to show you to say, look, I, let me open my arms and let me walk in what God has for me and let, let me hold it and close it to what God is doing. Look for ways to talk about what God has provided you. Show your family. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your kids. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have this. I'm so thankful that we, because of James' words, can show our families, look at what God is doing. Look at what he's given us. Now may we use it for his kingdom. Show them that God's in control. But when we reject this idea of being the ultimate planner, we also have to consider God's will. Look at verse 15. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Instead of believing that we have everything under control, James tells us to trust in something specific, in God's will. Instead of being arrogant, we were to respond in humility to God's will. This is what faithful disciples do. Instead of saying, I plan this or I'll do that, say, Lord willing, I will do this or that. Remember our speech declares the attitude of our hearts. Even this one phrase, Lord willing, or if the Lord wills. Right, we believe that God is sovereign. As a church, we believe that God is in control of all things. And, and, and there's some good discussion about what that looks like in the Christian's life, but at the very least, these three things are there. God is in control of all creation. At all time, through all points of history, God is in control. God's also in control of human history. Right, he's been working, and He has not, not stayed away from us. He's working in the midst of all these things. He's also worked in redemption. Right? God is sovereign over His plan of redemption, meaning that God, in the fullness of time, sent Christ at the proper time to die for you and me. God, also knowing who we are, individually and collectively, knows, knows us. He knows who we are. And so he is in control of all of these things. We believe that our God is sovereign. So, how does that play itself out? I'm not sure how many of you have, have heard this phrase. You, you may, you know, the phrase, Lord willing. I don't know if you try to use it regularly. I first heard this uh, at my first year in college. Uh, I was at a Bible study, and this, this man, uh, who was faithful and godly, you know, he would always, you know, we talked talk about having lunch together and he'd say, Lord willing, we'll have lunch on Tuesday. Why, why does he say that? I knew what he meant. Like, I knew in my head, I, kind of, I knew what he was trying to say. I think I was convicted by that. That he is saying, Look, whatever the Lord wills for tomorrow, I may plan it, but for whatever the Lord does, I will be there. So, as I felt convicted, I think that helps us understand a little bit what James is getting at. This phrase was a first century phrase. It was used, it would say, uh, if God wills. Well, I think uh, James probably baptizes it when he says, if the Lord wills, because that was a distinct Christian phrase, right? Caesar was Lord, but what James says, no, Jesus is Lord. And if, if God wills, if the Lord wills, then we'll walk in this. I think he baptizes that phrase. But also understand, this phrase is not some magical incantation for us to rightly order our lives or rightly order our words. Right? Words reflect our heart, but words don't always make our hearts believe rightly. Therefore, we must not mindlessly repeat it. Right? It must not cause this idea of determinism in our lives, that, well, I have no responsibility, just whatever God wants. That's not what James is saying either. It doesn't excuse us from our actions or our sins. It must convict our hearts of God's sovereignty. Our lives are in His hands. So how do we do that? How do we actually from, go from words to actually embracing this? Well, it should force us to evaluate our planning from a biblical perspective. Where is my life heading? What would God desire for me? To grow in godliness and sanctification? Does this, does this path help me grow in godliness? Whether it's for my kids to go to, to a certain school, or do I homeschool them, or do I decide something else? What helps them grow in godliness? Which can be lots of things. For our, our family, where should we live? What's the best place? What's the opportunity? What can we do to most help us grow in godliness? Overall, that's what the Lord wants for us. We make God's will this huge thing that we, we just don't, we're like, how do, we, how do we know what God's will is for our lives? Our, God's will for our lives is for us to look like Jesus. And now there are other details that, that we may not know, and there are other things going on, but we can trust him. And I think God's will is big enough for us to handle making a decision. Because if it, if it wasn't, then he wouldn't be God. So pray about it. Submit your life to that. Here's how this should look. We should submit our our lives in the planning of this. Right through prayer, we should pray to God. Would you be very clear about what you want? There have been times in my life where I've said, Lord, I have no idea what to do. I am not wise. Please help me. Also, I've said, please shut the door. If this is not what you want, shut the door and make sure that I don't go in this direction. We should also submit ourselves to God's Word. If we don't know God's Word, then it's going to be really hard for us to understand God's desire for us. We also should, should do this in community. Right? Remember, it's really easy to speak by ourselves. We should do that in community too. As, as the church, we also should plan our lives together with other people who can speak into our lives. We live in a culture and a day where it, you're just told that just you do you. That flies in the face of the Christian life. We must do this together. If we don't, then we're going to be floundering around. We must do this together, and we should seek God's will as best we can. So finally, as James, is, he's kind of landing the plane. When he's talking about this idea of rejecting the idea that you are the ultimate planner, we have to consider God's word. Look at verse 16 and 17. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. There it is. There's the root problem. All such boasting is evil. So it is a sin to know good and yet not do it. Now, James, he goes straight for the problem arrogance, as we talked about this morning. These these businessmen, they do not consider in any part of their plans or any of their time, and it's easy for us not to either. Right? What God is doing. The disposition of arrogance doesn't boast in God, but boast in itself. Under the planning is a misguided pride and ability that we can do this. They believe that they have everything under control. This is the pride of life. The Greeks called this hubris. You've probably heard the story of Achilles. right? This idea that his pride got the best of him. And erect havoc on his life and other people in the story. But we not, people not only leave God out of the account in their planning, right? They brag about it. Look what I have done. Proclaiming, in effect, that they have independence from the Lord. On the view that, that we've taken this together and this, what James is saying, James is rebuking not people of the world. He's, rebuking people in the church this is a real problem for us if we're not careful he warns us of the tendency to for the world to press us into its mold for the world to say yeah you do you, you have everything under control and he leads us very subtly to begin to reject these things we are not directing our lives It's inconsistent with the Christian worldview. It's inconsistent with faithful disciples. It's inconsistent with a God who is sovereign over all things. When we leave God out of our planning, we're really saying we don't need Him. We're saying that we're God. I I don't need you. This arrogance is evil, as James says, and it should not be named among us. And it's contrary to a worldview that believes God is sovereign. But look at, look at how James takes God's word and he, and he drives it to us in verse 17. After the confrontation of, of our worldview, look at verse 17. So it is a sin to know the good and yet not do it. James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is now written to us as God's word, has shared with us what we're supposed to do. We are to believe that we are not ultimately in control and we are not ultimately the judge. Often, we think of sin as things that we do. I sinned in this way, or I did this. But what James says, and what we don't often think about, are the things that we don't do that we should, which we would call sin, of omission. What is James saying to us today? He's saying to us that we need to consider our worldview, and we need to consider how we speak to other people, and we must then walk faithfully in that when we consider this in this text, I want you to think about Jesus. As much as James gives us, it's all without, it's all for naught if we don't consider the Lord who made it possible. Right, Jesus demonstrated humility in submitting to the Father's will through his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus submitted himself to that. Jesus confronted sin, but welcomed anyone who would come to him and turn away from their sin. Jesus, we see him. We see as the perfect example, someone who would even submit his own life to the point of death, trusting in God's will. It is this gospel, this real intangible life of Jesus that shows us how to live, but also empowers us to live this way. It's not just that Jesus is a good example. It's that Jesus is the one allowing us to walk in power, to love our neighbor. To trust God in the same way. It's without that power. If we don't have it, we might as well just throw this away and just forget it. We need Jesus to change our hearts. We need Jesus to help us walk in this. My prayer for us, church, is that we will be a people who love each other and therefore watch our words as we seek God's will for our lives and each other's lives, that we can grow in the gospel and we can push the gospel forward both deeply in our own hearts and also into the lives of people who have never heard, people who are hurting, people who are, are just in need of the gospel message. May we be that kind of people. Pray with me. God, would you empower us to live in light of who we are in Christ, not of this world not of other things will you help us walk this way may you make us a church that loves one another and submits our lives to you both in command but also in your will will you help us I pray for the decisions that are on our hearts today would you give us peace about those decisions that we need to make and as we plan not to make our own lives better not to to sit in our own thrones, but to, to grow in godliness, to help our families grow, to shepherd them, to walk with them. For those of us who are thinking about the words we've used recently, would you give us grace? And would you give us the power to walk in mercy, and the gospel? If we've been hurt, may we be people who show much grace today. Lord, we need you to work in us, and because of Jesus, we know that you can and you will. It is in his name that we pray, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.